0: We're looking at John chapter 12, we've been kind of building up through Jesus' ministry of Him meeting with individuals and gathering them to Himself. Crowds have started to follow Him, and now crowds have started to leave Him, and this is a point in the Gospel of John where things move from sort of Jesus building a following to to Jesus moving towards His crucifixion and resurrection that we'll be looking at um, after the break. So John chapter 12, uh, we pick up here, there's a crowd gathered around Jesus, and He starts to pray. So John chapter 12, verse 27, it says this. This is Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law and cannonball into this thing. Lord God, we pray that you would be with us. Uh, Thank you for bringing us to this place, Uh, this point in the semester, this sort of halfway mark, and the breather that is just around the corner this weekend. Um, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us tonight. Give us what we need. Um, Whatever it is that we need, we pray that you would grant it to us tonight. We pray this in your name. Amen. So my sister and her husband uh, used to live in San Francisco. Uh, my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, is um, a critical care specialist uh, just south of Nashville, Tennessee. And, um, but for his fellowship, uh, they went out uh, to San Francisco for him to kind of get the advanced degree, and he's studying there. And at the time, uh, he had a colleague another student who was from California and was there in San Francisco at school with him, but had this trip. I think he was coming to a wedding or something in Nashville. And so he was really excited, you know, and asked my brother-in-law for tips. My sister went to Vanderbilt and uh, he went to Vanderbilt Med School and, you know, wanted to know kind of like what's, what are the cool places and all this stuff. And uh, then uh, his colleague comes back from their trip to Nashville, and uh, he says, "Dude, I, I went to this amazing restaurant. I cannot remember the name of it, um, but it was basically like it was just outside of Nashville, right off the interstate. It was just like this giant like cabin with rocking chairs out front and like homestyle cooking inside, like this good, you know, old-time authentic uh, Southern food. And um, there were like signs all around with like these like kind of classic 1950s and 1930s and 40s signs on the walls. And it, I think it was called." the Cracker Barrel, I think that's the name of it, and uh, have, you, have you been there before, and um, I, I love that story because it's so, uh, if, you've not, if you're not from around here, you know, Cracker Barrels are everywhere, right, like when you, when you think that something like completely ordinary is extraordinary, it's just funny, like it's comical, um, and I mean the Cracker Barrel is both ordinary and extraordinary, I think it's a pretty, pretty good place, right, um, However, so that, that it's funny that he thought it was like this special, cool Nashville spot. Um, but when you see something extraordinary and you think it's ordinary, that's not comical, that's tragic. It's sad. And uh, what, what we just read was something like incredibly extraordinary. Did you catch it? Did you see it? Uh, here's, here's what was extraordinary. Extraordinary we got to listen into a conversation within the trinity. Uh, in christian uh, the christian god, the god of the bible is triune, god in three persons, father, son and holy spirit. that's why we just sang about that a minute ago. and according to the bible, the father, son and spirit have existed from all eternity. even before creation was made, they existed together in relationship and were in constant conversation. But this is one of the rare moments in the Bible where we actually get to listen in on two persons of the Trinity while they talk to each other, as God the Son and God the Father converse out loud in front of people. And I'm dying to know what they're talking about. Like, what would they have talked about for all eternity? We don't really know what they talked about before the creation of the world, but at least part of what they were talking about was what they're talking about here, which is glory. Jesus says to his father, glorify yourself, and then the father responds, I have glorified myself, I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. This idea of glory, and we see this principle here, that God glorifies himself. God glorifies himself. So I want to ask the question, why does he do that? Why does God glorify himself. Is he a narcissist? Is he a megalomaniac? Do we need to disable his Twitter account, someone? Please make it stop, right? <laughs> is, this, is this what it is? is? Is he this cosmic narcissist? Do you guys remember, remember when you were little kids and you were staying up late and your parents let you watch the VMAs because your favorite person, Taylor Swift, was going to Remember this? You yeah, know the story. Taylor Swift gets—I think it was her first VMA—and what happens? She's receiving the award. She steps to the microphone and up onto the stage leaps Kanye. You know the story. I'm gonna let you finish. But Beyonce had the best album of all, or the best video of all time, right? And this was like, this like made shockwaves, like nobody cares about the VMAs, but for 10 minutes we did, because Kanye, Kanye did Taylor and the VMAs a favor, by the way, in doing this, but at the same time, in that moment, everyone's like aghast, like you can see Taylor's face, like what's happening right now, what is going on, and that was at the point, that was the point in sort of modern cultural history, where people started to get a little worried about Kanye, (laughs) like we weren't just like, we're like, what is he okay, um, and and there's this thing like it it bugs us like, um you know what do you tend to think about a person who glorifies herself or himself, who who says like yes I w- I've glorified myself and I will glorify it again this is where like you're out of place like what are you doing like he was passing it on to someone else but it was still sort of like I'm not sure this is your moment I'm not sure there's a time and place for you to to grab the mic um it bugs us when people do that like you know. When you're around someone and or that awful moment when you realize it's you, that person that has the case of the I'm specials, right? And they, or you catch yourself in that moment and you're scene. And it bugs us when people do that. Um because we're not God, right? And that person that you know isn't God. And so there's a sense in which you're like, this is off, this is wrong, um, you're not quite as great or special as you might think. Um, And so that's what's kind of weird about that moment in our kind of cultural moment with Kanye doing that. But with God, it's sort of the exact opposite. Like, God, in fact, is that special. Kanye's pretty special. But uh, (laughs) he is the greatest thing in the universe. But still, we might say, like, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe it's not like, like, maybe God has the right to say, like, I'm going to glorify myself. Maybe he deserves it. Maybe he's a being worthy of that. But it still seems like a little bit strange. Like, is he like deeply insecure? Why does he like demand to be glorified by the cosmos? Is he needing to be shored up? Why does he need everything to revolve around him? Um, And uh, I would say, you know, not only does he deserve it, But if God did not glorify himself, he would not be loving. If God did not glorify himself, he would not be loving. I'm going to unpack that in a second. But it's kind of like saying this. It's sort of like by asking the question, like, why does God, and I've had this conversation and question with a lot of you guys. Why does he insist on being glorified? Why does he insist on everything revolving around him? It's kind of like planet Earth saying, you know, why does the sun insist on everything revolving around it? Like, why do we have to orient ourselves to the sun, the source of all of our warmth and light and life? Without the sun, nothing grows. Without the sun, nothing can exist on this beautiful little blue marble that we live on. Um. But God is the only being, the only entity that can be both self-glorifying and loving at the same time. Uh, and here's what I mean. Uh, if you love another person, what do you want for that person? You Feel free to answer. If, if you love someone, what do you want for them? You want happiness. You want the best. You want them to have the, what is good and true and beautiful and right. Like, you, you, we could say happiness. Like, I want my kids to be happy. But, like, uh, if my son is a sociopath, I don't want him to be happy. Right? <laughs> if, he's, if he's happy, like, dissecting squirrels and hiding them in the crawl space, I'm like, nah, I mean, I'm glad you're happy. Like, whatever makes you happy, son, fulfill your dreams. That, that's going to bother me. I don't want him to be happy in that because I'm like, you know, that's probably not good. But what I do want him to be is happy in the right things. I want him to have the best. I want him to have uh, what is wonderful. And according to the Bible, what is the best thing in the universe? What's well, God? Um, and so uh, to love someone for God is to want them to recognize himself as the greatest thing, which is another word of saying, another way of saying giving him glory. Recognizing his worth, recognizing who he is in all of his splendor and majesty. And uh, to, to know and to see God's glory is the best possible thing that can happen to us. And the only possible response, the only happy response, the only good response to seeing God in his essence is to glorify him, is to worship him. The greatest thing that you and I were created for, according to the Bible, is to worship God. And not just in the like singing and raising our hands with our eyes closed, but to live our whole lives toward him, to say he is worthy, he is worth it. We are going to worship you with our whole lives. That is the greatest endeavor that any of us can have. And apart from that, it's like the earth spinning out of orbit from the sun. So for God to glorify himself, it's not egomaniacal, it's not narcissistic, it's not, he's not a megalomaniac. He is both giving himself glory and calling for it from us, and at the same time, giving us the greatest gift he could. He is loving us in it. In fact, if God did not glorify himself, he would be cruel. He would be withholding the greatest thing from us. If you still have a hard time with that, I understand. that There's more to unpack. It gets more complicated. I would love to sit down with you and talk more thoroughly about that. But I don't just want to ask, that's why he glorifies himself. But I also want to look at how. How does he glorify himself? Um, and he glorifies himself through suffering, he glorifies himself through the cross. Verse 27, uh, Jesus has begun to move towards the cross, and it uses this language this language of, Now is my soul troubled. Jesus is saying, I am deeply disturbed within myself. It's a similar language that's used in the other gospels in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus knows he's about to die. And it's also an echo of the Psalms of David, where David will say, now my soul is deeply troubled. King David would go on in those Psalms to then cry out for help, uh, cry out for deliverance, um, saying, Lord, save me. But Jesus does not. Jesus says, what shall I say? Save me from this hour. But for this hour, I have come. And we've seen this appear already in the Gospel of John. When Jesus refers to this hour, he's talking about the period of his anguish and suffering and death. And there's a place, there's a sense in which, if you remember from a few weeks ago, Jesus says to his mother when she asked him to turn, asked him to fix the problem at the party, he says, my hour has not yet come. And now Jesus is saying, the hour has begun. It's beginning there's, there's an uh, escalation in the suffering that Jesus is now experiencing as he knows he is moving towards the cross. In the last chapter, in chapter 11, he's resurrected Lazarus, and the conspiracies to kill Jesus have increased and escalated. And they don't just want to kill Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus that Jesus rose from the dead. And so this pain and suffering of the cross is already looming large in the heart and mind of Jesus. He knows that it is coming, and he's been talking about it throughout the book. Well, what is it? Like, what is the hour? Uh, he's been alluding to it quite a bit, but what is the big deal? I mean, like, on the one hand, crucifixion is, like, excruciating, right? N- nobody wants to sign up for that. There's not, like, vacation packages where you can simulate it. it. It's a terrible and awful way to die. But, like, lots of people have been crucified. He's not the only one. Lots of people have been tortured to death, and that's terrible, but it doesn't save the world, What is going on in a particular and peculiar way with Jesus, and why is this, among everything else, so overwhelming to him? There's something more going on here. I'm going to teach you a theological word, and shameless plug for um, freshman small group, we're going to be looking at this uh, coming up soon, this idea of propitiation. Ready? Propitiation. Propitiation. it's this, this concept that's embedded in the New Testament. Paul refers to it very specifically. And it's this idea that we can't really understand the significance of the hour and the significance of the cross without it. Propitiation basically means this. It means not just that Jesus sort of volunteers to die physically in our place, but the notion of when, when, the, when the Bible calls him a propitiation for us, it's this idea that a, prop- a propitiatory sacrifice is one that satisfies the wrath of God. So the notion is this, the punishment that all of our sins deserve, the every consequence um, of death and humiliation and shame and wrath that belongs to us was sort of... If, did you guys ever drink concentrated orange juice as a kid or probably all the orange juice of the calf is this. You know, you ever had like the fresh squeezed stuff, like the Tropicana and the fancy jug with the pulp? But then they have these like frozen cans where they've taken orange juice and they've dehydrated it and then they mush it in and then if you add water, it makes gallons. It's not very tasty. It's not great. It's what I grew up on. But it's this notion that like, God has taken, if you can imagine this, the notion that like every sin, every every wrongdoing and all the the consequences of that, and he has saturated them down together and put them on Jesus on the cross. That all of that has been poured out on him such that Jesus would cry out, as we sang a moment ago, the Father turns his face away, where Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both just why have you left me here alone to die, but why am I suffering suffering? The punishment that you have for me. And here's here's my point with this. When Jesus talks about, I will be lifted up, and he says that this is, he said this to say the means through which he was going to die. The God who insists on glorifying himself glorifies himself through the cross of Jesus, through his suffering and his dying in our place. When Jesus uses that phrase, that the Son of Man will be lifted up. It's this, John is famous for this. He does these, this double entendre. He means it in the most literal sense of Jesus being hoisted up onto a cross, but at the same time in this paradox, he's also being glorified in that moment. That God is glorified through his own suffering and pouring out wrath upon himself in order to save us. That's how he glorifies himself. And the result of that is victory. That in his death and in his defeat, Jesus becomes the victor. Verse 31 says, now the ruler of this world is cast out. It's this idea of Jesus coming into our world and upturning the tables as he does in the courtyard where he sees poor people being exploited and outsiders from the worshiping community being kept away from the temple of God and Jesus flips the tables and cracks the whip, and he's saying, I have come to conquer every enemy, every spiritual force that is against humanity and against my father, and I am driving them out. I am throwing out the ruler of this world, and when I am lifted up, I will draw everyone to myself, granting them forgiveness and blessing and life to all kinds of people. That is how he glorifies himself so I want to close with this. It's midterms, so I, I gave you a short, quick fastball tonight, okay? Third question, what are we going to do with that? Why does he glorify himself? He glorifies himself because he loves us, and he's worth it. How does he glorify himself? He, he glorifies himself by suffering and dying and suffering hell on our behalf. And then third, what, what do we then do with that? What do we do with that? And it's in the passage. It's interesting, though, like, there's the different responses of the crowd. Like, if you ever said to yourself, you know, I wish God would just speak to me from the clouds, right? I think all of us have kind of ached for that. <laughs> you know, like, I understand, I can see that God's, God exists, that he's real, it makes sense to me, but, you know, I just once would wish God would just directly speak to me. I could just hear his voice. In verse 29, like, that happens in front of this crowd, and how does a crowd respond? Half of them go, well, that was an angel speaking. And so these guys, they are kind of getting it, but not quite. They're like, you know, Jesus has some sort of special divine access. He's a prophet or something, but it's not direct. It's not straight from God. And then the others are like, that was just thunder. are a group of people who literally heard the voice of God the Father speaking from heaven and said, that was thunder. And Jesus even goes on to say, that voice was for you, not for me. Like, you were supposed to hear that. It was thunder. There's a natural explanation for this. There's a way that we could explain this away. There's some other way to to conceive of it. Um, Several years back, I did a lot of reading with a guy um, named Richard Dawkins. Not, like, physically with him, but of him. Um, And I remember listening to one debate. He's a very famous sort of uh, atheist and it was really fascinating to me that in the midst of the debate, he talked about, um, he's a scientist, so like observing sort of the majesty of the cosmos. And um, he basically said, you know, as a scientist, you begin to unpack it, you begin to see it. And as you look at just sort of the magnitude of the universe or at the microscopic level of atoms and protons and even the, the human cell and on, on down below, like either way, either direction you go, it's just this sort of overwhelming beauty and incomprehensibility and he basically said this I'm I'm changing his words he didn't use this word but he what he the content of what he was essentially saying is that as a human being I admit to you that when I look at all of that stuff I want to worship somebody I want to attribute it to someone and be grateful and thankful towards that thing and then he circles back and says but you know science makes it possible for me to suppress that notion within me and just look at the data. To which I almost like wrecked my car because I wanted to grab him and say, but what if that impulse is part of the data? What if that instinctive sense of like, this is glorious and wonderful and I'm so small and I can never understand it and I'm just, can't help but wanna worship something, is part of the information that's part of the equation. That is something screaming at you like thunder from the clouds, that's the voice of God. What if that impulse is part of the evidence? And Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, That voice was for you. And that voice, that voice of God is embedded in this word. It's embedded in the scripture that God has given us in the Old and New Testament. And, and Jesus has put himself on display. What are you going to do with the revelation of his glory? Jesus says, The light is with you for a little bit longer. And while you have the light, believe so that you may become sons of light. It's this incredible command and promise at the same time where he is saying, back to the earth and sun metaphor. If you go out to outer space and you look at the earth, it glows with splendor. And he is saying, when you are in touch with my light, when you believe in this light, you become a son of light you yourself then begin to radiate that light to others so that they don't have to walk in darkness like a blind person stumbling about. God puts his glory on display so that we can see it, so that we can believe in it, and so that we can then reflect it to each other and to the world around us, thereby giving him more glory, which is our greatest good and our greatest end. While you have the light, believe. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you that uh, you have put your glory on display in so many incredible ways. Uh, We pray that we would see that light, that we would believe it, that we would give you the glory that you deserve, uh, and that we would be blessed in the process. We pray this in your name. Amen.